Hello everybody. Hello everybody. We finally did it. Laura Dern is here in person in studio. Hi Laura. Hi Laura. How are you? Wait, let me oh, her mic isn't on. Hello everybody. Hey. Hey, there she is. Great to see you. Oh, you look great. I love your shirt. I thought you'd be taller. It's crazy that she's only like three feet tall. She is. She's very tiny. Yeah, you know those those lenses, they make you look tall. It's true. They do like some of the, she'll be standing on a box to create the visual effects. Exactly. That's how they make Kevin Hart look taller in movies. Mm-hmm. He's only like a foot tall. It is. Yeah. You stay it's young. Laura's <laughs> You stay young in Hollywood by sh- getting shrunk down. It's true. They're like bonsai trees. Kind of like that movie we watched with Laura Dern in it. Isn't that right, Laura Dern? Hello, everybody! Oh, Laura, you card! So good, that's her line. Uh, if you haven't picked up on it yet, Laura Dern is not in Max's apartment. Yeah, I'm sorry to burst the podcast bubble, but it's just me and him and a box of oatmeal raisin cookies. (laughs) Nick eats quite slowly. I do. And in a sultry manner? You gotta savor it. Life's about savoring the cookie. Okay. That was... What Forrest Gump said. Passably sexual. <laughs> what Forrest Gump said. Also passably sexual. Passably sexual. So, uh, Darren after reading. We're doing it again, huh? Still at it. Well, it's Wednesday, so we better record Monday's episode. Yeah. That's our slogan here at <laughs> DAR Industries. Industries. <laughs> oh, man. So what's up? What's going on? How are you? You shaved? You look, I, you I look dapper. Shave. Thank you. I, I like to dress for the occasion. Put on a little button-down shirt. Yeah, I was going to wear buttons, but then I just wore this Grateful Dead shirt instead. Yeah, I know how you live. Yeah. I also, I need to try out all my pants, because I think most of the jeans I've had, I've had for so long that they've shrunk, and now I look like... A little boy wearing two small pants when I... But what does it do for the package? I mean, you know, it's there. And the... The tookus. Oh, my ass always looks great. Okay. I mean, that's... As long as the ass is popping. It's... I just... I feel like I look like a newsie. The uh, the, the amount of sock that shows. And sometimes I'm going for that. (laughs) I was going to say. But I don't want it to be every look. Sure. Wow. (laughs) Really starting off with fire this week. I will say... So I not long ago went through all my pants that like i just kind of stopped wearing and of course you you shop from the youth husky section of kmart so yeah (laughs) i go to the one kmart that still exists phoenixburg pennsylvania (laughs) a a made-up town (laughs) that's definitely still real yes um but i went through all my old pants and I had sort of discarded them as I don't like those pants, you know, and just set them in the back of the closet. And I tried them on, and some of them fit wonderfully, Ooh. and then came back in the rotation. So I would encourage our listeners, if you do have some discarded pants that have fallen off, maybe give them another shot. Yeah, I mean, it's September 9th, fall is here, so try on all your pants. Pants season. It's pants month here at Dern After Reading. <laughs> We're going to talk about pants every episode. What are your favorite pants? We have to do it now. Um, that's a good question. My favorite pants. I have a pair of gray women's slacks. And I usually wear them with suspenders. And they're like, they have flared legs. 
They're not bell bottoms, but they're definitely just like a woman's pant. Sure. I enjoy them very they're much. They're like a blouse of pants. Kind of, yes. And they, they make me look like an old-timey businessman had a baby with like a disco guy. Okay. Yeah, and that's I, your wheelhouse. Exactly. It kind of, it looks like, um, <laughs> like a, like, um, uh, what's that German style of design that's a really sad? No, no, no. Like the, like, like Bauhaus... Newsy. Like, <laughs> that's how I would describe those pants. Nick has <laughs> many, many types of attire. He's got Newsy, he's got Bauhaus Newsy. I, Bauhaus was my word of the day on my word of the day calendar, so. Here we are. That one's off the list. <laughs> oh, well, I have some Dern news. Okay. She is filming another Jurassic Park movie, as you might know. Sure. Um constant listener and max and um she posted a lovely picture that i don't know if you saw you might have but i'll show you anyway it's her dog yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah it's... she's holding its mouth open and it says shh shh sneak peek welcome to jurassic park world jurassic world so do you think her dog is in the movie uh he better be do it... we know that that is in fact her dog i think so i'm pretty sure she has a dog okay 80% sure. Listeners, let us know. Yeah, if you want to dig deep in her Instagram and find out for us, we would appreciate it. Yeah. Also, I have a little um, a little call to action for our listeners this week beyond going through their pants. Um, I'm going to describe this, but I'll also put it on our Instagram. I was prompted by a, another podcaster who I will not give free press on this show. Let's just say he is one of three brothers who answers questions and their name rhymes with Sackleroy. Anyway, he has his own show that isn't called Wonderful. And they were talking about Laura Dern. And he jokingly mentioned, I need to put my Laura Dern poster back up so I can remember her more. And then I thought, I should get a Laura Dern poster. I love her. She's kind of my life now. And in my search, I found this this abomination of a (laughs) t-shirt. You can get it for $23.99 from a website called Subi. Subli works and um it's just a bunch of laura derns collaged on a t-shirt oh that's perfect it's kind i don't and you know it's gonna be all crappy oh for sure like (laughs) i'm not gonna get it but it's fantastic like the the call to action for the listener is would you wear this email us text us let us know call us throw a brick through max's window with your answer strapped to it it's true 1506 swain street philadelphia pa (laughs) Let them know. <laughs> I, ain't, I ain't scared. Oh, I'm not giving them my address. Are you insane? I'll give them your address. I, I'm not. You don't know my address. I can look it up. Don't do that. <laughs> I don't want our 12 listeners to know where I live, no. despite the fact that upwards of six of them already do. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's good. I'm glad you got to listen to the fantastic Fauntleroy Brothers podcast. Yeah. Oh, I did not listen. I was shown a clip by my... Adorable partner. Oh, I almost called her my secretary, but I thought I she'd thought get I was mad. Adorable partner. You're my other partner. Other Speaking of adorable partner, yes, you heard it here first. <laughs> it's Cam. I'll refer to my other partner as my mistress if that pleases you. <laughs> I know it won't please her. Anywho, I was at the beach with my mistress this weekend, and it was quite a fun time. Oh, good. We visited Zoltar. We had ice cream. Um, we la- 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 lad laid lewd in the sand and read Stephen King books. Which books? Um, I am, well, we'll get to there. Okay. We have a whole section dedicated sure, to things we're to doing, media-wise. <sighs> oh, 
So, what's up with you? How are you doing? Um, pretty good. I, uh, let's see, since we last spoke... It's been at least a week. It's been at least a week. What have I done with myself? <laughs> um, have you been treating your body like an amusement park? Yeah, in a good way. Oh, cool. Yeah, like, <laughs> letting everybody in. <laughs> and charging. Doors are open. No masks required here. Oh, oh God. Max, should we be sitting further apart? <laughs> you can tell me. Um, I don't have any exciting news to speak of. I've been living like a, a dull existence, which I like. I thought you were going to say living like a dullard, and I was going to be I like, know, I'm fair a enough. dullard. A bit uh, of a dullard. I've been, I've been trying to get in like an early to bed, early to rise kind of groove. Oh, yes, as um, the Ben Franklin was yeah, to do. He also took naked air baths. Have you been doing that? Not yet, but I do. Sh- I do go to Old City Philadelphia and shit in the hole that he used to shit. In. Ah, yes, the old shitting hole down yeah. in Old City. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's right by the place I used to work, yeah. the Franklin Fountain, where I was a senior soda jerk. <laughs> Sorry, I had a phone call earlier about a job, and he basically read me my resume and then said, "You're not right for this job," and I was like, "Thank you, goodbye." Then I felt bad for a minute, and then I watched what, what, the movie Focus, which we'll get to. That was not level, a segment. What level of soda jerk did this job require? I don't think that was the problem. I think it was a it was a job in um, the video recording of sporting events, which I already hated. Yeah, that's but you know, cameras are cameras. I could have made it work, but he said I didn't have the experience, which is true. And I was going to lie my way through the whole thing, but I don't appreciate him calling me out on that. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Yeah, you put him know, on blast? I, I send, couldn't send the Dern army after him? I could not tell you what his name was. Yeah. Robert, maybe? Go get him. Find a Robert. Punch him in the dick. Punch a Robert. You know, you're giving me so many good jumping off points for my movie about, about gang violence and anti-Semitism. And but. that brings us to our next segment. Oh, I, I still have a few things. Oh, all right. I have, so let's keep the fitter. I mean, going. just two little things. Sure. Um, so I've been, I've been doing some independent reading on the presidency of the united states as one is wont to do like as a position um a little bit that um i've been reading this book i guess we'll do some uh, between the derns early should i do it now or later it's up do to it you later you okay. already we'll do, i'm the, sorry i'm sorry okay let me write that down so I don't forget well um so what do we do now uh i think it's time for a little a little big little Wah, 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 wah. Anyway. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> I watched a movie this week, and I really watched it. For real, I did. No, I, re- I know that sounds fake. I really did. And it was a it was a good movie. Um, this movie was called Focus. It is from 2001, and it is not a car by Ford. You might find it in your Google searches, so keep digging. It has a few characters of note. Um, David Paymer. A Jewish man you may know. I don't. Well, you might know his face. Go ahead, look it up. I'll talk about more people in this movie that aren't Jewish. Um, Meatloaf is in this movie. Jew? No. I looked it up because I was curious. Because he plays... I believe it. He plays a... A not... No, he's pretty anti-Semitic. I was going to say not un-anti-Semitic, but he doesn't like Jewish people. Um, The man that wrote most of his music is Jewish, though. Oh, David Paymer. The dad from that children's movie. Yes. Carpool. 
There you go. Dad free car. Um, let's see, Laura Dern is also in this movie, but we'll get to her. Also starring William H. Macy. Now, what I can say about this movie is that it is a lovely art house film. I've really been itching for an art house film lately. I was going to watch Eight and a Half by Fellini, but I didn't, and I watched this instead because I had to for this podcast yeah, that I don't get paid Laura for. wasn't in Eight and a Half. <laughs> he was not in Eight she and a Half. She got cut for time. Nor was she in a... What's that really gross one that I want to watch? Eight Millimeter? No. Wait, Eight Millimeter? It's like a snuff it's film that sounds like Eight and a Half. Ah, uh, wait, it's, it's, it's a great... Cage. The listeners know. I was... The... The one about, like, this... Mm, Solo? Or a hundred and some days and... I don't know. It's a gross art movie I've never seen, but I want to. Okay. Unrelated. Like scatological? I assume so. I think okay. it's like sex jail kind of stuff. Yeah! A sex jail, you know. Fun times. Anyway, so this movie opens on a a very art house scene. It's like a carousel from a bunch of different angles and all the gears and the music and the lighting is really cool. I do have to say this entire movie is shot very beautifully. Yes. Just brief interjection Go for it. before Go for I lose track. Uh, there is no B movie that I can find called Sex Jail. Oh, so it was not called Sex Jail. No, no, no. Jail. I'm, I'm saying <laughs> we could make it. Oh, yes. There, there aren't enough movies that really exploit the idea of sex and jail yeah. being the same concept. <laughs> we, could, we could be it on the ground floor. So. Please. Um, yeah, we open on that carousel scene, and then a very close-up shot of William H. Macy waking up, and then his hands are over his eyes, and, like, you could see all the lines on his hands really well, and I just kept thinking, this is beautiful. And then we hear a lady outside, and he goes to the window and looks out, and there's this guy who's, like, a little drunk, and a lady, and they're like, you know, they're having a him and a haw, not quite... They're fooling around? They're fooling around. She's definitely trying to leave, and he's like, I want to touch you more. And she's like, oh, you big lug. And then he punches her, and then he rapes her. And <laughs> so it's, baby, it's cold now. Yes. And then he's just, he's just raping her, like, raping her. And William H. Macy's watching, and then she sees that he's watching, and she's like, do something about it. But she yells in Puerto Rican. So, I guess he didn't understand, but he definitely knew. Spanish? Spanish. I'm sorry. It is a big point that she is Puerto Rican, and it is mentioned many times. That is why I said that. But anyhow. Um, and he sees it, and then he just ignores it, because he's kind of a... It, this introduces the fact that William H. Macy is kind of a spineless jellyfish man for most of this movie. And, uh, yeah. So, rape happens. It's over. He does spineless very well. He does. That's he, something I thought about. He's good at being a little wiener. He either plays, like, a very dominant person or a very me person like there's no middle ground like in jurassic park he was a me person in that show he does where he's a bad man he's more of a dominant person sure you know the show the william h macy with all the, the drinking and the chicago's um what is that show called diners it's dives. not diners drive-ins and dives I, it doesn't matter you know the show. You, you're you screaming. You're We're getting letters as we speak. Yeah, that's true. They're being slid under your door. <sighs> so he goes into work. He has a mom in a wheelchair that lives with him. He's not married. He wears a nice little suit. You know, he's a cute little man. I like him. And uh, so he's at work. And his boss, he's walking in. All the ladies say hello to him. And he's saying hello back. There's something I like about this movie, which I say about every movie that takes place in this time period, they did a very good job with the setting, the dressing, um, the all the old, like, big billboards that say, like, 
you know, like, buy war bonds in, like, America, the safest place to be a white man, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, like, the newspaper stand is very vibrant colors and stuff. It's very cool in that kind of way. And, like, the... It's in New York, but it's in, like, definitely, like, a s- more suburban borough. I never quite got where they were. Brooklyn. Oh, okay, sorry. I forgot I read the description two <laughs> minutes ago. Um, but yeah, you know, he's going to work, he works in personnel, and his boss comes in and says, uh, you need to get glasses. And he says, fine. And then he goes and gets glasses, and that's where all the trouble starts. Because the glasses, you see, they make him look Jewish. And that is pretty much the impetus for everything else that happens in the movie, the fact that he gets Jewish-looking glasses. Huh. And, like, he gets the glasses, and then he goes home, and his mom says, like, why'd you get those glasses? And he's like, I want to see. My boss said I had to. And then she says, makes you look Jewish. And he's like, well, eggs to you, I guess. Like, I don't know. They're glasses. It's crazy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, then Laura Dern comes into his work. He has to. He needs to hire people because he's personnel. And uh, she's hot as shit, you know. She's all, like, baba voom skin, Ooh. dress. She's got that, like, sideways hat and, like, big hair big blonde hair yeah yeah she's like um not um not dissimilar to like a jessica rabbit okay femme fatale yes except not that high of stakes but still sure. and he sees that her name is heart or was heart and he believes that she's trying to hide the fact that she is jewish in fact she is not but he doesn't hire her and then she says this mean little thing like people are the way they look and I know what you look like, implying that he's Jewish. Which, of course, is still bananas, considering, like, you have Jewish glasses. Like, that's... It... This... The the more this movie goes into how ridiculous that premise is, the more, A, I believe this could make a great comedic premise if you had cut out maybe the rape in the beginning. Sure. Like a funny little, ah... Like, it sounds like a Seinfeld thing, basically. Like, mistaking someone for a Jew and then, like, that... Like, if you took away the anti-Semitism, it would be funny. Can we, like, can we go try to cancel people who aren't Jewish but wear glasses? <laughs> yes. And then, if we see a Jewish person wearing glasses, we just applaud them. Yeah. Ira Glass, you are so brave! <laughs> Ira Glasses! So brave. <laughs> Why does he not do ads for, like, Orby Parker? Thank you for your service. Ira Glasses. Ira Glasses. We would like a 20% cut of this. <laughs> Because we know you're listening. You listen to every podcast. He just plugs into like a Matrix. Yeah, not just ours. Literally everyone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All 20 million of them. Um, So A, comedy. And then he picks one for This American Life. He's like, oh, that's interesting. What if we got on This American Life and he's just like, talk about Dern. And we're like, uh, (laughs) Uh, ah, success. It'll all go to our heads. We'll We'll be like Motley Crue. (laughs) (laughs) on the npr circuit going down broad in a lamborghini just like no sleeves swimming in well-educated pussy (laughs) oh man to to be a rock star of npr (laughs) again i remember my days on the force by force i mean npr anyway so a this would be a great comedy movie if you cut out all the gross parts b the further we go in, the more and more I think of now how people are crazy racist and just be doing it in public. It's true. Isn't yeah. that weird? Like, even in this movie, there's definitely a sense of, like, you know, 
that's a thing you keep to yourself. And like, if you're going to do something to somebody, do it at night, which isn't good. I'm not saying that's good, but like people now just in broad daylight doing stuff like that. Being anti-Semitic. Rape. Really anti-everything. Oh. I mean, no, more like the, I don't know where I'm going with this. It just reminded me of how ridiculous people still are. Nothing has changed, really. It's just, you know. You know. Sure. You know. If you know, you know. All right, so the glasses. You know. My friend who lives in Norway recently said, I'm sorry you live in a television friend show. show. Friend of the show. Um, yeah, she said, I'm sorry you live in a television show now. And I was like, we really do, don't we? Anywho, so glasses. Um, Meatloaf is his neighbor, as I've mentioned. And he plays, like, he does it well. Like, this is the best acting I've seen Meatloaf do, considering the other acting is Fight Club, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and Spice World. Yep. But it's definitely, like, it gives me vibes of, like, if Meatloaf were on Broadway. Like, him in a play. Like, that was the performance he gave. So it wasn't bad, but, like, it definitely was, like, naughty. Not. (laughs) Meatloaf is a ham, after (laughs) all. He always arrives overdone. No, but, um... It was like, I don't know, like, like when somebody that's not a theater person does theater, like when Bruce Willis did um, Misery a few years ago and it was famously really bad. I feel oh, like... Oh, that sounds horrible. Actually, no. I think he would do... I don't know. Meatloaf is also like a flake. Like, I feel like the last three years, any show he's done, he has to either cancel or he like passes out halfway through and then they cancel it. But yeah, any moral of the story, kind of good. Kind of good Meatloaf. All right. And like... This is based on a play, and I could definitely see it. It reminded me of, like, well, like the first intense play I ever saw was um, Buried Child. I don't know it, but that sounds um, I think extremely it, it won a Pulitzer. It was, like, this story about, like, alcoholism and a broken family and, like, an abortion that happened in the house or, like, a miscarriage, and they just, like, buried the kid in the backyard. And it was very intense, and I'd never seen, like, an intense live piece of drama, and that's how I felt this translated. Like, it was a very... You know, it's about anti-Semitism. There's a lot of really good, like, soliloquies. Um, William H. Macy says some pretty cool stuff. But we'll get there. So, William H. Macy. Just a reminder, not Jewish. He is a World War I vet also. Doesn't really matter, but it comes up one time. Um, and then he basically, when he comes back to work, he is told he needs to move his office because he gives a bad first impression, which means he looks Jewish and they don't want that. Uh, like, he's, he's the first office you see when you go in. So he quits, and then he goes around looking for jobs, and no one will hire him. He goes and meets his friend, and his friend is like, oh, I have a, there's a position open, I, I'll send you to this guy. And it happens to be the guy who turned him down earlier that day and said we don't have any positions. So he was feeling pretty miffed. And then he went to this place, and he gets a job. And coincidentally, the secretary there is none other than a Miss Laura Dern again. And she apologizes, and they have a nice talk about how neither of them are Jewish. And then they go on a date. And he gets the job, and then he's dating this girl. And I feel good for him. Like, you know, he's kind of a noodle man. And now he's getting a hot lady. He's getting a hot turn. And, you know, they're they're having fun. And, like, uh... And some other bad stuff is happening in the background. Like, um, trash gets thrown on his lawn because he's on the list, even though he's not really Jewish. Which is, like, one of the comedic parts. Like, it's not funny, but, like, you know. Yeah, like, ah, I'm not Jewish. Anyway. I don't, that's not. You damn anti-Semites, he runs out there. Like, that, like, it's PG-13, so there's nothing too extreme, but there's definitely, like, times where there, there is a line that where you could make it comedic if you wanted to. But I'll stop harping on this. Um, at one point, Frank. Hold on, just to be clear, this is during after reading. We harp. 
Oh, sorry. We, I'll harp more later. Um, Frank, who is Meatloaf, um, his son, he gets his son to sell papers across the street from the Jewish newsstand where the main character, William H. Macy, always gets his news. And he's like, buy American, which doesn't make sense, because even though the man who owns the store is Jewish, he's still American. And that just begins this tiff with them, like the store will be attacked later. And yeah. Sorry, I'm not quite sure which way to go with this. Um, so William H. Macy and Laura Dern, they're on a date. They he she asks him if they want to if he will marry her. You know, very progressive. And he says yes. And they they're planning a wedding. They're doing all these things together. Um, Frank is being very friendly towards them, which is kind of interesting because it's definitely like a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing because like he hates them and like is kind of part of the group that's persecuting them, but is also like lighting her cigarette and like seeing them off and all this stuff. And he says like, oh, I don't know who threw garbage on your lawn. I didn't see it, even though like he was clearly up before William H. Macy and outside walking his dogs. Just like weird stuff like that. And they go to a resort. It is a restricted resort, so they are not allowed in because they look Jewish. Sure. Yes, so don't look Jewish if don't, you're going to don't wear glasses. state New York. Don't be hot. And um, at one you know, on the car ride, she's telling him about how um, she didn't actually grow up in... She wasn't born in Buffalo, as she told him earlier. She was born in Staten Island, but she tells people Buffalo so she doesn't sound Jewish. Oh, is Staten Island more Jewish at the time? I think Staten Island is famously Jewish. Oh, I just thought it was racist Italians. Uh, or it might be black. I guess that. both. There, there, there's an even split in the middle of Staten Island. To the left, Italians. To the right, Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well-known fact. But, um, yeah, and then a few other things about her come out. Like, she had lived with this guy in Hollywood for a while who was part of the Union Crusaders, which is a... I, don't, I didn't do any research into this, but apparently is a notable anti-Jewish group. Basically a pro-America group. You could compare them to more recent, let's say, Trump supporters. Right, but with a more, I think I'm passingly Perhaps a a, um, a proud boy, if you will. We haven't talked about those in a while. Oh, proud boys. One of which I am not. Of course. But yeah, so they get kicked out, and then they're all, you know, William H. Macy is very upset, as you imagine. Like, he, it starts to become like he is taking everything very personally, which I think is good. Like, he's not, like, othering himself with the whole Jewish thing. He's not, like, he's not pressing on the fact that he's not Jewish as much as this goes on. He's pressing on the fact, like, this is wrong. You shouldn't treat people this way. Okay. And he's very upset, and Laura Dern is in the car with him, and she's like, we'll find another place. And then he's, he just yells, like, I can't go through that again today. So they go to this restaurant, and he's, like, still mad, but they're talking, and it's fine. And he's just, like can Jewish people eat clams? And she says, no, they're shellfish. And then the waitress comes over and she's like, what would you guys like? And he says, I would like an order of clams for my wife. And I will also take an order of clams, a large order of clams. <laughs> and it's just very funny and indignant. And like, you know, it's good. Like there's, there are funny moments within this tableau of awful, oppressive sadness. Yeah. And then they go back. Um, they see the corner store. The window had gotten smashed in and like the, there's this big meeting at Frank's house. Like all it's things are coming to a head. Um, this is where Laura Dern tells him that she lived with a man who was part of the crusaders and like, um, had guns and the, she recognized a guy who was like a head up dude for them. And she basically says, um, so you need to go to this meeting they're having, or we need to leave. And he's like, I'm not going to leave my house. So he goes to the meeting and he doesn't clap or stand up when everybody else does. So they beat him up and kick him out. 
And basically the whole meeting is just a pastor like yelling about um like globalism and how he doesn't say like, you know, the conniving Jew or anything like right. that, but it's, it's solemn everything but that. Yeah. And he's also saying, like, as you may, if you look to your left, look to your right, there are representatives of the globalist media around us. He sounds very Alex Jones at times. Right. Yeah. And every, those are not new tropes. And, of course, everyone's looking at old Jewish glasses there, William H. Macy. And he's just like, I just came because my wife told me to come. And then they slap him. <laughs> they throw him out. And the cops say, you should probably leave. Which is good advice. Yeah. You know, you don't need to be there. Um, there's a very good quote that I think really symbolizes the performance of Meatloaf here. I thought you done gone and married you a Jew woman. Oh. Which I think it's, it just, it tells you his performance, I think. Like, he's a very <laughs> American man. Right. He's Meatloaf. He's playing himself, but if he but were if alive he were like, on the tail end of oh. World War II. <laughs> Brutally anti-Semitic. Exactly. Also, before this movie... I knew anti-Semitism was definitely a thing, but I did not know it was as large of a thing. Ooh, can I uh, share something to oh, that please end? Please, tell me From an anti-Semitism time? story, Max. Um, no, I, I recalled finding a few years ago a video on YouTube of a rally, of a Nazi rally at Madison Square. I Park, have read about that, yes. And it is haunting. It is terrifying. The place is packed. And that's when it really hit me, of just kind of the scale we thought we beat Hitler. We didn't. The Russians did. Um, Wasn't that was that like at the be- before World War Two? That II, was the before. World okay, War II. yeah. Um, but nevertheless, that oh no, still that like is, the fact that there's that active of a Nazi party in the United States. Right. Exactly horrifying. It is wild. Um, let's see. Oh, there's a very good um, standoff then where William H Macy like he, he um, Frank says that William H Macy gets up. And Frank, like, moves, like, he thinks he's gonna hit him, which I like, because, like, you see William H. Macy's really coming to his own, and he's, like, not taking any more shit. Yeah. And he basically gets in the middle of the street, and he's yelling these things at him, and he's, he's, um, up to this point, he has been very, um, careful not to implicate himself in seeing the woman that got raped. Like, he, his mother says, like, a cop came by, and he's like, uh, what cop? Like, continues. Yes, that, it's a that. continuous thing that goes on. He basically just doesn't want to be a part of it, because he's still, like... Up to this point, he's still kind of that spineless. He doesn't want to get involved. He doesn't right. want to cause trouble because, like, he knows the guy that did it. Right. But then he's in the middle of the street and he's just yelling about all these stuff. And he's like, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about his, this guy's name who raped her in the middle of the street? You know, she's dead. She was in a coma. Now she died. He's yelling about all this stuff. and He's super worked up. And then um, we cut to a movie that him and Laura Dern are at. And, like, there's, in the movie, somebody says, like, you can't just drown all the Jewish children. And this drunk guy in a suit just stands up and says, why not? And everyone's like, sit down, Frank. And he does. But like, Ah, the 40s. When, when and he drunk just, worse. When he, <laughs> it was, you know, it was like a like a shitty suit, but still. He's yeah. Like, you just no. got, ah! You could just stay, go to movies and yell racist stuff. Yeah. Don't say those for the days, but you know. <laughs> you know, don't be such a proud boy about yeah, it. Exactly, you're Max. Oh, hell, the turns have nope, table. Nope. Now you're the proud boy. But, uh, and not then... Canon. They're, they leave the movie, and it, it's giving me big, um, like, Batman vibes. Like, they're walking through this dark alley, and I'm like, oh, shit, it's gonna happen. They're gonna get anti-Semited. And they, con- like, a group of the Union Crusaders, like, come up on them, but they, like, they're heading for the store. They're heading for the newsstand, and they just kind of, like, pass them, and they, like, 
don't really give them much mind. Like, maybe they say a few things. And then they get there, and Frank, um, sorry, no, William H. Macy grabs a bat and helps uh, the guy who owns the store protect it, which is, you know, a nice move. I appreciate that. Because, um, wait, sorry. Please stand by. Yeah, I just, I didn't want to get ahead of myself or behind. And then he's basically talking to him and he's like, you need to leave. And he says, I will not move, which is kind of what William H. Macy had said earlier. So like we're seeing parallels there. And then after an hour and 23 minutes into this movie, we get the payoff of hatred is going around us like a crazy carousel. Because he had a dream about a carousel in the opening. Oh, which right. it's never elaborated upon any further, which makes me curious. Like, what did he do with carousels? Did he fly a carousel in the war? We don't know. <laughs> we may never know, but that's just one of those little things about a movie. Um, but yeah, um, they're pretty much not going to live in fear anymore after the place gets hit up. They actually, sorry, after the place gets beat up on, he again yells about the rape in Frank's face. And he's like, why did you let these people do this? And he says, I'm not going to stand around and let this happen anymore. And Laura Dern like gives this awful like upset face. And then he runs out and he runs to the police station. And you think he's going to tell them about the rape. Right. But he tells them about the attack. Like the, the anti-Semitic attack. attack. Okay. Yes, by the Union Crusaders. And he's like, he says all this. And the cop is like, can you give me any names? And he says, well, I can't tell you who they are. And the cop's like, if you can't give me names, I can't do anything. And then Laura Dern in a lovely purple dress walks in and says, I can give you some names. And then, um... The cop says, so how many of you people live on the block? Uh, Jews. How many Jews live on the block? And uh, William H. Macy says, well, uh, Fink, who owns the store, and um, us. And then the movie's over. Um, But yeah, so I guess in the end, they really were Jewish. Jewish at heart. But like, you know, it's nice that they like, they took that stand with him. And like, you know, they're fighting for change. And that was kind of the end message, like. Just because you're not Jewish doesn't mean you can't stand with them. And, and also, I think notably, this is based on a novel by Arthur Miller in 1945. So yes. immediately following World War II, um, it feels striking and powerful in that regard. It's definitely like a good, powerful, moving movie. And I guess really the whole message of this is a uh, don't get glasses. <laughs> Don't do it, don't man. Don't focus. Don't. You don't need that eyesight. Forget about it. But yeah, that's my movie. You know what I learned from Dern? What? You know what I learned from Dern? Well, it's okay to be Jewish, first of all. I think that's a given. Sure. Um, Even though she's not. Um, it's okay to be a powerful lady. It's okay to... I don't know. I don't know what she taught me. She's a cool lady. She was nice. She had a, She made that noodle man strong. Yeah. I'm proud of her. I'm proud of him. Not as proud of Meatloaf, but... Lift up that noodle man. Lift up that noodle man. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, that's my movie, I think. Any... Anything, uh... What do we do now? Um, I think we talk about what's between our dirts. Oh, we're gonna dig out the flashlight and look between your dirts? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Cool. Well, what's between your dirts this week? All right. Well, I think I should start with something that is highly relevant. And that is a book I'm reading right now um, called Eichmann in Jerusalem by Hannah Arendt. Hmm, you don't say. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's written on my, my wall there. It is. Um, it, are you familiar with this book? I am not. 
It is a, a very famous book, a somewhat controversial book. It is from where we get the phrase, the banality of evil. Hmm. It is about the Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann was sort of a, a kind of, he was a Nazi officer who was captured in Argentina in the early 60s and then was taken to Jerusalem for this big trial. And it was a big, big deal because, like, did they have the right to take him and start to have this trial there? Um, but the, the kind of thrust of the book is where people sort of wanted him to be painted as this evil mastermind who orchestrated all these things. He really wasn't. And they wanted him to be this anti-Semitic monster, and he also really wasn't. <laughs> but make no mistake, he was, like, directly designing, um, you know, transportation to death camps and things like that. Uh, so the phrase banality of evil is the idea that um, when these atrocities happen, it isn't maybe the result of just these, like, violently evil people, but it's often boring people, kind of <laughs> dumb people. He's, like, kind of a dummy, and he just, like, was sort of... I was only following orders. I was only doing my job. Um, so she. So there's a lot of focus on that. And it felt important to me to read it now just as a sense of, well, things feel like they're often not so great um, to look back at uh, perhaps the biggest atrocity in world history and look at these sort of these mundane aspects of how it came to be. Um, and it seems very related to focus in terms of these themes of what responsibility do we have? Who is responsible for these things? Right? What, what role can we play in the face of these things? Um, so I'd highly recommend it so far. Not quite done yet. You know, that's a bummer. Not that you want Nazi to... Mm, how do I put this? You want to think that Nazis are all like big bad evil types and they all got like crazy power, but... They were just stiffs. They run creative types. Yeah. <laughs> just just dudes. Yeah, they were it's it's really fascinating to hear. Like he had like Jewish family. He's like, I don't hate Jews, and there was like plenty of evidence for that. Like But at the same time, he's, you know, directly implicated in their deaths. Imagine the bottom twenty five percent of your high school class. They could have been Nazis. <laughs> um, I don't know. Don't, don't, I think to, that feels mm, classist in a way. I think to suggest that this is a, a fault of the uneducated, um, right? That feels, that's what makes me angry about people on the left getting angry about Trumpers or writing them off as just, oh, well, they're just a bunch of idiots. That's not really the case either. Um, I think that, Right, because some of these people were not poor by any means and became Nazis. Many were very powerful people, obviously. Um, but that any... But I think what it shows is how easy, easily it can feel like morality can be just removed from a situation. Like, that ultimately is what compelled this guy, if he did have sort of moral qualms about what he's doing, to keep going, was that everyone, everyone else is doing it. Right? And it was just, there was no one else was raising their hand and saying, oh, there's an issue here. It was like everyone was playing along and suddenly it became very normal. It started with like, oh yeah, we're just going to like 
put the Jews somewhere else. They're like, oh, we're going to exterminate them. Um, and so I think, yeah, I don't think it's fair to say it's just the, the dummies. <laughs> no, that's, it's such, it's, it's not accurate. I don't like that. I just met. I wasn't thinking. Of, I just said it offhandedly. I know, but I, people say it offhandedly, but it, it doesn't feel reflective of reality. I think. I think I was just thinking about my high school, where the bottom twenty five percent of the class, a chunk of them are actually, you know, anti Semitic and terrible. Oh sure. Not anti Semitic necessarily, just anti um. What's the word for not white? Racist. Ah yes, I always forget that. Well, let's talk about something a little lighter that has sure. never had any problems. The presidency of the United sure, States. Please. Oh, man. We've never had a bad one, have we? Not a one. Not a single Love one. every single one of them. Well, I've been reading a book. I'm not going to talk about Stephen King. Everybody knows who he is. Oh, I'm we'll reading a short there. story book. We might get there. Who knows? We only have an hour left. Um, let's see. So I'm reading a book by John Hodgman. It is the second in his series of made-up fact books, where he just makes up facts. Some of them are, like, half-true, some of them are, you know, it's interesting. And I know a lot of facts. I am a Jeopardy boy, so it's fun to look at the facts that are partially there and then, like, see how he added or adjusted them. He had a whole section about the presidency of the United States where he talked about all the presidents individually as well as the Electoral College. And this, um, this drove me to find a few real facts that I'd like to share with you. Sure. Do you know the last president to wear a mustache? Um, Taft. Yes. <sighs> yes, it was William Howard Taft. Mm -hmm. And do you know the only unmarried president? James Buchanan. Well, that was my whole segment. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. If you'd like to read the book, it's very fun. <laughs> but yeah. Um, I, you mentioned Jeopardy. I did. And it occurred to me today... Why is the Daily Double called the Daily Double? If there are, in fact, three Daily Doubles per day? Hmm. That is a good question. It's going to bother you for the rest of your life now. Double. I mean, my thought is that it gives you a chance to double your points. Right. The because... double part, perfectly reasonable. Yeah. It's the daily part. I'm really... I mean, they play the game every day. Right, but there are three daily doubles. Yeah. One in single Jeopardy, you have two in double Jeopardy. Well, you know, you can have more than one take five bar a day. You can, have, you can take ten. Hell, you can take twenty if you're feeling it. Right, but you wouldn't call it the daily five. I mean, you call lottery numbers the daily five. <laughs> and accurate. you draw multiple of those. No, they do, that's one a day. No, they don't draw so one number. Daily. There's usually five numbers. <laughs> so it's, it's daily is the once per day by definition. Well, um, if you'd like to put Alex Trebek in his grave, yep, go ahead. Keep talking about it. Yeah, now I'm pissed. <laughs> I'm fucking heated. I'd like to get the Jeopardy people on the line. All the people that created it, which are now dead. All right, we'll patch them in. <laughs> we'll bring a fourth into this. Laura Dern, who has been sitting silently in the corner... Staring in Lord, horror. Give us a at hello us. in about ten seconds, would you? <laughs> oh, oh, she's, she's take your time. Get ready. She's moistening her yeah. mouth. She mm -hmm. has some. She has some water shake there. Shake it off. Shake it she, off. You, know, you gotta do some little warm up. She's doing them silently to herself, which 
really defeats the purpose. Yeah, there you go. Three, Hello, two, one. everybody. Oh, thanks, Laura. You were a little early, Laura. We'll do better next time. Maybe. God. Actresses, am I right? <laughs> so, uh, besides that book, I, um, I got Something Wicked This Way Will Come at a lovely bookstore in Rehoboth Beach. Never read it, but okay. trying to do some spooky books as it is spooky season now. It is spooky season. So yeah. Do you have any spooky faves? Spooky faves. Um, hmm. Well, of course, the um, Stephen Schwartz, Alvin. Um, Stephen Schwartz and Alvin. I can't think of the artist's name. But the people that created the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark books. Sure. Always a classic. Also watched the movie this week, right. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Very good. I I don't know. I thought it might not be great. A lot of adaptations like that and movies that are made more for kids and mine aren't always as good. But, like, it was it was good. It was definitely spooky. It has some nice people in it. It didn't have any, like, huge kid stars, which I, I've been liking less when they just, like, put the same four kids in movies. Like, you know, you know the ones. Yeah. The kids. The kids yeah, they aren't stay the same age. Ugh, gross. They just stunt their growth with well, cigarettes. Cigarettes and cocaine. Laura Dern's been the same age for 25 years. <laughs> but yeah, um, Spooky Faves, I like that. Um, Stephen King short story books are always a go-to. Which one are you currently reading? I'm currently on um, The Bazaar of Bad Dreams. Ooh, it is, I believe it's from 2016. It's one of the more recent ones. And I've never, I have not really read anything recent of his, like past, let's say 2005. So it's definitely interesting to hear him using more modern words and like talking about more modern situations. But he still, you know, has the classics. There's stories that take place in the '60s and stuff. It's good though. I like it. I like it, Max. Good. I like it a lot. I can't really think of any other spooky classics right now, but I'll I'll keep that in mind for next week. Can I share one? Oh, please do. Are you, are you familiar with The October Game by Ray Bradbury? I am... Mm, I've heard the title, but I don't really it's, know much about it's, it. It's one I try to read every Halloween. It's a short story. Um, it's about... I'll just spoil the whole thing Oh, please do. Because you can't really describe the goodness <laughs> of it without that. Um, but it's a divorced couple, has a young daughter, and they are at um, a kid's Halloween party for the daughter. And the parents bitterly hate each other. And the mom loves, loves, loves the daughter. She's her pride and joy and everything. And um, so everyone's, all the kids are there having this party. And then they go down to the basement to, in the dark to like, oh, put your hand in a bowl of spaghetti and his intestines or whatever. That old, that old canard. And... So, as they're doing all this, the dad had set up the, you know, the spooky reach-in and the dark and feel things. Um, Then, at the end of the story, the mom is starting to worry she doesn't know where the daughter is. (gasps) And that's... And she says, she she puts two and two together and screams, don't turn on the lights. That's crazy. That's yeah, it's fucking great. Something I've been noticing lately is like when I read a a short horror story, I'm getting even when I listen because I I've been listening to a horror fiction show for I'd say almost two or three years now, so I've just gotten a lot of horror in me. Like I 
I get about halfway through the story and I can usually pick up like what's gonna happen and like where it's going. And that's definitely something I enjoy, like having that intuitive knowledge to know like, oh, it's gonna be the dead girl or oh, it's gonna be his wife was dead for weeks, but he just is pretending she's alive or like whatever. Um, I did just see a great film. I was late to the game, but I, I call it horror adjacent. And that would be Midsummer. Oh, Midsummer. Did you see it? I did, yes. Oh, I loved it. I oh, fucking I loved it. I I can't remember if I saw that in theaters or not, but I do remember it being very intense. It is highly intense. Um it, to, if the listeners are unawares, it's about a, a couple that's sort of on the rocks, a young couple. One could say on the rocks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> on the rocks! If you've seen Midsummer, you realize how hilarious that truly is. <laughs> um, and they go to, to Sweden to this Midsummer festival, and it's basically this strange sort of cultish, ritualistic kind of place. And... In some ways, it's sort of the best representation of an acid trip that I've ever experienced. Um, They take, or actually they take mushrooms early on, but then the whole movie plays out very similarly in terms of the visuals and the structure and like the varying degrees of intensity and wonder and fear that the characters have. Um, So that's like one thread that's really cool, but it's also this sort of horror mystery thread where people in their group disappear and it's a super creepy culty place. Um, And then the other thread as sort of uh, a parable, parable is definitely not the right word, an analogy of the couple's deteriorated relationship. Um, And it brings all those together. It's wildly bizarre. Very strange. Liked it a lot. Did you know that was a breakup movie? He made that in response to his relationship failing, which, yes, it does make quite a bit of sense. Um, Bronte, our friend of the pod, um, if you're out there, you live in a midsummer land. If you have any notes on this, please contact me. Yeah, what is this ritual? Have you been to this ritual? Have you done this? Do you actually kill all of the outsiders? Are you the midsummer queen? She very well could be. She is still alive, so, you know, you never know. And now you know. Yep. Yeah. Anything else in those durns? I think my durns are all emptied out now. Freshly squeezed. Freshly squeezed durn juice. Ooh. Oh, that was grosser than I thought it would be. Stop listening. Oh, well. Why are you doing this to yourself? If you're here after everything we've done this far, (laughs) meatloaf, the Nazi party, durn juice... If you're still here, then you're ready for our next segment. Little Dern! Little Dern! Little Dern! Little Dern. Just like in the studio. Oh, she's so small. A mere three feet tall. I, one more between the Dern, small oh. little between the Dern, that relates to this. Sure. I have been pounding through a British re- game show called Taskmaster, which I think I've mentioned in the yes. past. And, um, you know, like there's a host and then there's a guy named alex horn who wrote the show and he like hosts all of the tasks that they do like um quickest how what's a good one example like um eat the most watermelon in 60 seconds and you walk into a room there's just a watermelon like he hosts all this and the host of it always like belittles him in a fun way and he always calls him little alex horn (laughs) and that's what i thought of and i recently saw the first episode of the new series 
the newest series I've seen. And the series a- is British for season. Yes. And Alex Horn is saying, um, now even my kids call me little Alex Horn. They don't call me daddy anymore. Oh. And then he looks at Greg and says, and they call you daddy. That's a true story. <laughs> they have a very fun rapport. It's a great show. Anyway. So yes, little Lord's Earn, little Alex Horn, sitting in their little little bench down there. So what's your little dirt? My Max? little dirt. I love the idea of my little, little dirt, and I can like tousle her hair. Oh. Um, mine was the 2013 video, Back Beyond, ah. which is a collection of deleted scenes from the film we covered on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> The master, um, a, a big, a big shame and tisk, big old shame and tits to me, <laughs> shame and tits to Nick for for missing out on this one uh, because it is a wonderful film and just watching this twenty minute deleted scenes reminded me uh, just how good the original was, and another big shame to my old nemesis David Lynch. As you may recall, on episode one, David! on episode yes. one of this podcast, yes, I had to watch deleted scenes from a fucking <laughs> labyrinthine, <laughs> nonsensical David Lynch movie, and it was the worst experience of my year. And this is twenty twenty, <laughs> and this David I, David. If you're listening, first, rotten hell. Second, learn, if you want to learn how to make a collection of deleted scenes, watch Paul Thomas Anderson's collection of the master deleted scenes back beyond. What was so great about this, it's 20 minutes long, is it was, it told its own story while it was kind of filling in the blanks, uh, some blanks from the movie. Um, it was, it was told telling its own story. It had its own through line, its own suspense. It had its own score. It was set to the music from the master, which I hadn't realized was done by Johnny Greenwood, the Hmm. guitarist from Radiohead, um, who was also fantastically good at this sort of 40s jazz, classical, uh, big band swing kind of music. And so, let me get into the sort of the plot of it because I can talk about these deleted scenes with a plot, and that's oh, beautiful, beautiful thing. So we start with Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is the master, the Elron Hubbard character, the leader of this Scientology esque group, and Joaquin Phoenix, who is Freddie, is a drunk. He is um, he was a World War II vet in the Navy. He has PTSD, um, and he's kind of searching for meaning, and he's a drunken mess, and then he gets sort of involved with the cult and becomes a member of it. It's really the thrust of the, the master. And so it starts with the two of them on, on uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's ship, and... He, he says to Joaquin, he says, what if there was a period of time where when harm was done to you and we can do away with it? And the way this is all shot is the deleted scenes, there's voiceover throughout. So you'll get voiceover from one deleted scene while the other deleted scene shows, which mm-hmm. gives it this really cool continuity. 
And so we get things like that, um, and then we get Freddy, Joaquin Phoenix, like, drunkenly, he's making his own moonshining, he's pouring some sort of liquor, like, filtering it through a loaf of bread into a cup. Oh, in, like, God. A weird, in, like, a weird bathroom. Is that a and thing they it? did? I don't know. <laughs> but then he does, like, a funny boozy dance. Um, so you're saying he was practicing for his later role as the Joker. Yeah, but we'll get there's better dancing Ooh, in this deleted scene. Okay, we'll go get on. there. I'm interested. And then while he's doing that, we hear his own voiceover saying, Asshole. Oh, asshole with cum on it. Like, asshole. <laughs> and then the next scene is him doing a Rorschach test, and all oh. he sees are assholes. Oh. Um, which is very funny. And then we get Philip Seymour Hoffman doing sort of his Scientology parlor tricks that he's doing. It's not hypnosis, but there's a woman on a couch and everyone's gathered around. I I just imagine, like, the old school, like, um, the Brown sisters, like, the... Like old um, occultist stuff where they would do like the the seances and like the table would lift up and there'd be right. knocking on the walls and shit. Yeah, it's like it's very sort of parlor trick. He's like holding court doing these kinds of things. Um, and meanwhile, Joaquin Phoenix is like drinking in the other room. And we get Amy Adams, who is a member of the cult, and she says, similar to what Philip Seymour Hoffman opened with, she says, Oh, the, um, what do they call it? The time hole is like this concept of, um, this, this organization. She says it means going to a place and realizing you're on the right track so you can start life over again on the ground floor. And it's all these ideas of sort of with us through our ritual, we'll be able to, you'll be able to start a new fresh slate, get rid of all your past trauma. And then we get... Joaquin drunkenly jumping off of his Navy ship before, back in the Navy, and swimming across the bay, and then he's, like, hooking up with some woman in the back of a car, and he's he's a sloppy, drunk mess, and then he gets out, and he misses the ship out, leaving leaving port. I'm Um, not, I've never been in the Navy, but that sounds bad. That's that, that that'll get you a finger wag from the, from the admiral. Oh, you'll you'll get a finger somewhere in the face. Mm-hmm. That's where they wag it. <laughs> that's, that's mainly the effectiveness of the finger wag. Yeah, if you do it to the back, it doesn't really work. No, it's seen as more of a reward if you stick it up there. Huh. Um, so then we get so so it feels good if you put it. Never mind. Never mind. We'll, we'll talk about this off mic. You were saying we already have. Oh yeah, I forgot how. <laughs> doing great thanks for asking <laughs> all cleared up they did the trick mm. but every now and then i like to you know just have a little fun it's fun that you you know those little like candle melts i do you you were like the candle and your butthole was the little thing you put the candle melt in yep you're just a human wax pot you are it's true very nice cocoa butter mm. um we digress we digress so then we get another voiceover, and this a very familiar voice to you and I, Ms. Paul Lauren Thomas Anderson. Dern. Dern. <laughs> Paul Thomas, Laura Dern Anderson. It is in fact Laura Dern. Okay. Uh, nice. And she, if I recall, is also a member of the cult. And in this scene, she's sort of playing psychiatrist to him, to Joaquin, and 
similarly, same theme, allow that there may be color with unfamiliar tones. There may be a strange quality to the air. Even human bodies seem to radiate a different kind of warmth. So again, Mr. Lynch, fuck yourself. See how we have the same sort of theme recurring throughout. Um, she's sort of psychoanalyzing, and she's like, what? He's like, I smell something. And he's on the couch. And she's like, what is it? Like, what's the smell? Or does it, or does it remind you of anything? Is it bringing back memories? And he goes, I can smell your pussy from beneath your underwear. Oh, and it's driving man. me fucking crazy. Wonder why they cut that. <laughs> I don't know, see the movie. It, it, it would have fit in splendidly. Um, well, I slept through it, and I can tell you I don't remember that scene. <laughs> um, so then we get some guy telling Joaquin about the Master's first book. He says, half of the, the 12 test readers killed themselves. Uh, and it cuts between that and now the master and Joaquin are on a beach. And he's like, hey, come with me. And they, like, lead him off somewhere. And then it cuts back to him telling more about his first book. And it had this power to kill people. And Philip Seymour Hoffman gives Joaquin a shovel on the beach. And then they start, like, digging near, like, a little beach cave and pull up a lockbox. And now, like, tension's building. Again, Mr. Lynch, die in a fucking fire. But also, see how he's able to introduce tension in the deleted scenes. Brilliant. And they get the lockbox, and Joaquin Phoenix then goes, cuts back to him in the car, the other guy, and he says, like, books don't kill people, you dummy. (laughs) Drunk mess. Hey, um, dr- drunk, drunk words speak sober thoughts. <laughs> and as a sober man, all I can say is I agree. Yes. Amen. So now we get, now Philip Seymour Hoffman takes Joaquin Phoenix to like an empty office and he has the lockbox. He says, I believe you have what it takes to entrust, like, entrust this and take care of it. I'll be back tomorrow. And then... Later, we get a cut of Joaquin opening the box and just flames immediately start shooting out from it. It was like he wasn't supposed to open it. And flames start shooting out and closes the box. And that's like a metaphor. Yeah. For something. And so then we get the best dancing of all. And God, rest in peace, Philip Seymour Hoffman. His movement... I... I believe that man can boogie down. He, but it's not really... It's it's boogieing, but it's boogieing as L. Ron Hubbard would have boogied. God. He's such a master of performance that he embodies this character, and in every silly movement, you see, like, his confidence, his bravado, and just his... And it's not good dancing, but he, he commands it with such gravitas that, like, it's just the the whole force around him. And I, th- I don't know that Philip Seymour Hoffman has too many characters along those lines. And I think that's testament to how, ah, oh, listeners, go pick pick one, anyone, go watch some Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was absolutely incredible. And so then what do we got? What do we got? So Freddie gets invited, Joaquin gets invited to the stage by Amy Adams, 
and he comes up from outside, he comes up to the stage, and he gets an honorary jacket, as he's uh -huh. now been promoted to the first lieutenant of the cause. And he seems genuinely happy in this moment. He has this big smile. And then we get kind of, now we're reaching the end of our deleted scenes, we get a few different scenes of Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman, one's them dancing together, then the next is Joaquin taking photos of Philip Seymour Hoffman, like in the desert, and it seems like, it, it's to show us almost like this sense of community probably meant something to this guy when all like the, the, the psycho babble stuff, the culty ritual stuff really didn't mean shit. He was just drunkenly like, whatever. I smell your pussy. Um, but now it, it shows like this genuine kind of affection and goodness he has. And it seems to be the only scenes where he's not like noticeably drunk in the deleted scenes. And then we get, now we're back in the Navy ship. And so there's before this, all this, he had met any of these people. And he's in his Navy outfit and we see him pin uh, like a handwritten note on a bulletin board and the camera slowly, and he walks down the hall, and the camera slowly comes up the hall, and we see on the on the bulletin board, it says, Gone to China, Freddie Quill, which is his name. And then we see him sleeping on the side of a moving ship, which is probably Elrond's ship, from where we had at the beginning of the deleted scenes, where this story began. Um, so we pack all of that into this 20-minute scene. And then we get the one sort of separate but related deleted scene, the very last one. And it's a scene where um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix are sitting across from each other. Joaquin hand, lights a cigarette, hands him a cigarette, and Philip Seymour Hoffman goes, I like Cools, the minty flavor. Right, Cools, the menthol cigarette. Of course. The, the minty flavor. He goes, God, he starts laughing and says, fuck you. And like something made him laugh. We don't know what. And Joaquin bursts out laughing. <laughs> and then you hear like someone from behind the camera like, all right, do it again, do it again. And it's the one continuous shot. It happens again. Um, and the third time, it seems like they nail it. But then Joaquin like grins a little and they both start laughing. <sighs> and it cuts to the end. That makes me very happy. It's so fucking good. <laughs> I love it because that's such like a like a bullshit um, L. Ron Hubbard thing to say. Like I like cools. I mean, and just and just breaking on that. Yeah, but, but again, to his brilliance as an actor, he doesn't break character. Oh no! Like, yeah, fuck you. It's like L. Ron Hubbard doing it. I love, it's oh. so good. And this is all on YouTube. If anyone's if that sounds cool, um, go watch Back Beyond on YouTube. Um, I don't think you need to have seen The Master for it to be its own standalone story, which was really, really impressive. Paul, hell of a guy. Thomas. Anderson. Cooper. I can't think of another yeah, celebrity. There's no Coopers. Cooper. My neighbors had, had, a, my neighbors had a dog named Cooper. Cooper the dog. Cooper died. Dog the bounty hunter. Hit by a car. Hunter S. Thompson. Um, Thompson... And Thompson. Thompson, Thompson. Thompson Water Seal. Tintin? Tintin. Was that a Tintin reference? I was thinking of the Water Seal, but... Uh, yeah, what, Tintin. The Water Seal? Yeah, like the 
the thing you put on like wood stuff. So oh, is it called Thompson and Thompson? I think it's just Thompsons, but I for some reason uh, in my head I was like Thompson and Thompson. Yeah, that's Thompson Thompson business yeah. business business. business. <laughs> Cooper. Let's see if there's a Cooper. Famous Cooper. We got Philip J. Cooper. That's a real estate agent. D.B. Cooper. Oh, that's one. That's a Cooper. People with the... But, they, but those are last names. I, I know none of the Cooper given name people. Alice, Gary, name. Anderson. There's no first name Coopers. There's Cooper Cup. There's a football player. Cooper Huckabee. Ooh, Cooper Huckabee. Television. I remember Cooper Huckabee. Yes. Best detective we ever had. <laughs> Went missing out there. He was in Django Unchained. It was a little town called Roswell, New Mexico <laughs> in the year 1943. Dun, dun, dun. He married an alien woman. Lives on Jupiter. <laughs> oh, Coop. What time is it? Are you my son? Anyway. Um, yeah. Sounds like a good... I yeah, might actually was watch a, The a Master pleasant, now. A pleasant surprise, um, given my track record with deleted scenes featuring oh. Return. Speaking of David Lynch... Oh, fuck. Nah, you know, I get to watch a movie with him as a character. Ew. Um, this is a short film that I now have lost the name of oh here we go it's called the black guy guy gondola gondola the black gondola it has a pretty star-studded cast we got johnny depp we got laura dern we got jk simmons of course we have david lynch and some other people um i don't know looks cool i think uh what's his face was involved with it Uh, i think it was one of sam raimi's last things oh cool Wait, oh no, he's still alive. Never mind. He's still Um, making things. Giondola is Italian for gland. Ah. So, uh, I'm gonna watch The Black Gland. Sure. It's a zombie movie. Looks exciting. And you're gonna be watching some little uh, independent feature called Marriage Story. Marriage Story! A movie... I don't wanna watch it again. Oh, that sucks. I mean, if you are confident about what you know about it, you really don't have to watch it again. I need to rewatch it. Um, I liked it. It was very, very good. And I have already professed my love for Noah Baumbach on this podcast, so I will rewatch. But as I recall... It, it's such a divorce movie, and that's such a very particular type of movie, with it's highly intense, and it was the kind of thing I was like, okay, saw it, done with it, can move on from it, but I will revisit it for you, the listener. And this and movie, you, this is the movie, I believe, that won her an Oscar, correct? It is. Yeah, so I, I, will, I will be wearing my Dern-colored glasses. Um... Not to be confused with Jewish glasses. Oh, don't wear your Jewish glasses, especially if you're in the 40s in Brooklyn. I saw a picture. They do look kind of Jewish. They do. I'll give it to them. M being the people of Brooklyn, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) The people of the Republic of Brooklyn. Huh. Well, I'll be. E, does she have an Emmy? Laura Dern is very close to being an EGOT. Okay. 
she has an Emmy. She has a Primetime Emmy Award. She has a Golden Globe. She has an Academy Award. Yeah, she just needs to win a Tony. Laura Dern, get on Broadway. Maybe, uh, what could Laura Dern be in? She could, she could be my fair lady. She could be my, um... She could be the problem, man. I don't know if she can sing, that's the problem. Let's, let's assume, yeah, well, if she could, where do you, where do you put her? I mean, hmm. Like, her range? Or, like, where, no, no, what no, no. show what, I would what, throw her in? Would, yeah. Ooh, I mean, Dreamcast, obviously, would be, if they did Assassins again, she could play Squeaky From, oh, I think. She'd be a very good Squeaky. Great. I was thinking maybe Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we've done the POC Alexander Hamilton, now I want the all-female, <laughs> all-white-female all cast of... <laughs> Do 1776, but with chicks. <laughs> 1776. Chicks! Ah, yeah! Oh, man. Um, but yeah, I'd say it. I'd go with Assassins. Or maybe, like, uh, Unsinkable Molly Brown or something. I could see that. That's like a maybe big... in, like, ten years. Yeah, she's, she just gets mage on her. <sighs> I don't know if you've heard, but one of the most successful plays on Broadway of all time is still technically running... Um, the recent redux of To Kill a Mockingbird by, uh, the West Wing writer, dude, whose name escapes me. Oh, no. I know. Aaron Sorkin. But it's a very good play. I saw it with, um, funny enough, the, one of the leads from Dumb and Dumber, Jeff Jeff Daniels, Daniels. who is a great dramatic actor. He is. Anyway, I think Ed Helms, no, not Ed Helms, Ed Ed Harris is is (laughs) still the current sitting Atticus Finch. I... I, I predict the next Atticus Finch will be Laura Dern. Oh, that'd be good. Or she's Scout. Actually, it is interesting. Um, all the kids are played by... I wouldn't say adults, but definitely like late teens, oh, early 20s. But they are dressed like kids, like they act like kids. Okay. Which is probably just to get around all of the complicated hour laws you have to do with children on yeah. Broadway. Damn Democrats. Honestly. God. The kids want to work. <laughs> we give them the dancing pills and they dance. <laughs> Hundreds of dancing boys. Love this. <laughs> God, they're so good. Oh, well, anything else you want to you wanna drudge out to this listening audience? Um, I didn't say what I learned about Dern. Oh, what did I, If I say Dern? it, it'll be in poor taste, because the only thing I learned about Dern was her smelly pussy. Oh, God. Whew. She so she made a she made the same upset face she made at the anti-Semitism in the movie I saw just now. <laughs> she she didn't appreciate it. No. I you think Laura Dern has very good personal hygiene. I like to assume. I do have one little thing to say, a little a little um marking of time passing. Oh. I don't know if you've noticed, but this is the first page of a new notebook. Wow. We I did not fill an entire notebook with Dern notes, but I finished off a good portion. I polished off a good deal of a what notebook. What was in the front half? Um, it was my general school notebook, so there was some stuff from my creative writing class, and then just right. some like odds and ends, lists, and what have you. Right. I think there might be a Christmas list in there, perhaps. And then a whole bunch of Dern. You kept your Christmas list in the notebook? No, no, I believe it did was... Did you mail the notebook to Santa? I did, and, and then he... Back? returned it to me and um had some unkind words <laughs> no it was um a list of things i was getting for other people uh, it was my 
little. Oh. It was my little Saint Nicholas's list. <laughs> That's right, folks. I am Santa Claus. That is sacrilege. And that is canon now, so. Yeah. <laughs> that's all I got. That's it, and that's all. I uh, love you, Dern. Bye. Until next time. I, I love Bye, you. Dern. Do you want I, anything else you want to say to the audience? I love you, Dern, right there next to me. And what Go do you. Come on, say goodbye. I don't think she said goodbye in the tape. Hello, everybody. God damn it, Dern. Oh, Dern. Oh, Dern. Oh, Dern.